You better be listening to Sleezoids or I must break you. Have you ever heard of Candyman? If you look in the mirror, you say his name five times. In cities everywhere. Candyman? They whisper his name. Let's roll, huh? In this neighborhood is a house where souls never rest. You're invited to share their secrets. I've been waiting for you, boys. You're invited to share their tales. Unless, of course, you're scared. Tales of madness. <laughs> of revenge. The dolls don't want you there. They want reparation. <laughs> of horror. He thinks he needs to kill the monster. Candyman. It's just a story. Candyman. Candyman. Just a ghost story. Candyman. An entire community starts attributing the daily horrors of their lives to a mythical figure. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise, and at the end of each episode along with our honorary Sleezoids, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon. We're talking Tony Scott taking two of the most crazy scripts I've ever seen and uh, <laughs> directing the hell out of them. So, yeah, join the sleaze. We decide on all the official ratings and rankings for every film uh, that we cover. Patreon subscribers also get an on-air shout-out and two bonus episodes every single month, which we have been doing for over three years. I think yeah. there's something like 90 bonus episodes now, uh, as well as our bonus transmission series where we talk about new release genre films, which will be um, of interest for today's episode. Yes. Um, so if you haven't made the jump yet, patreon.com slash podcast. And speaking of which, we have a bunch of uh, shout-outs to give this week. We have... Uh, uh, Christopher McCullen, Robert Chakowsky, um, Junis Latovara, Chris Higgins, Daniel Roth, Paul Merrick, Carson Shepard, Alex Pittard, Evan, Daniel Shaherudin, uh, Logan Gartner, Polly, you guys are getting tough with me, uh, <laughs> Listalo, uh, and Robert Wells. So thanks to uh, all of you folks for signing up. Hope you're enjoying those bonus episodes. Yeah, thank you. That's the one plug for the week. The other plug is always Apple Podcasts. If you guys are listening on Apple Podcasts, uh, and I see the stats, I know that you are. I see you right now listening. Scroll down to the bottom and give us a good old rating and review down there. Helps us climb the ranks and find new listeners. And the very last plug is uh, merch. If you guys like the uh, poster art that uh, local based out of Toronto horror artist Trevor Henderson did for the podcast, uh, you can get that basically put on anything you want. A pillow, a notebook, a hoodie, uh, a shirt, whatever you want. Uh, even if you just want a poster like Jamie and I have in our own places. Oh, yeah. Uh, you, you can get that at the link in the description or at sleezoidspodcast.com if you're interested. Uh, but yeah, that is the intro. You guys know the drill. Welcome back to another week. I am your host, Josh Lewis. And joining me also, as always, is my co-host, Jamie Miller. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome. I think uh, two weeks ago would have been the last time you folks would have heard from us, and we would have been talking about Abel Ferreira gangster films starring Christopher Walken, very different kinds of uh, <laughs> styles of, of existentialism. We had uh, King of New York from 1990, which is a very uh, b- 
beautifully shot film so beautifully mm-hmm. shot that abel actually kind of uh, <laughs> takes offense at how gorgeous it is yeah um and he followed it up by kind of subverting king of new york with the funeral which is just one of the bleakest uh, <laughs> saddest films i've ever seen Yes, uh, we can't even really uh, spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it or listened to the episode yet, but we went long on that episode with Rob, as we always do, uh, talking (laughs) about gangster films with him. But yeah, we had a lot of fun breaking down uh, really, really bleak, sad, uh, subversive gangster films by Abel Ferreira two weeks ago. That was uh, any podcast listener of choice. And then last week, we did uh, one of the episodes you guys have been asking for for a long time and one that we kind of um, (laughs) teased very early on in the first year of the show when we did our Jackie Chan episode. We finally hit Lau Kar Lung because we talked about how his relationship with Jackie Chan on uh, Drunken Master 2 that they worked on together and kind of the the bit of the fight that they got into the different styles of choreography where Jackie kind of wanted the more grounded, realistic, what can the physical body really do? Even if it's still absurd because he's an amazing athlete, he likes that realism to it. Oh, yeah. Whereas, you know, Lau Kar Lung likes kind of like the, the more expressionist quality <laughs> of, uh, you know, uh, wires and pageantry and the camera moving around just as much as the performers do. Right. So we broke uh, down two of his uh, you know, most acclaimed films. We talked about 36 Chamber of Shaolin from 1978, a movie about giving Kung Fu back to the people. Yes. And uh, 8 Diagram Pole Fighter from 1984, which is basically like uh, all of the themes and tragedy of a three-hour war epic condensed into 90 minutes straight of the most insanely choreographed action uh, you've ever seen in a movie. Yeah, truly, truly <laughs> unbelievable athleticism in that film. I don't think it's 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 rarely uh, matched by any other martial arts film that I've seen. Yes, the 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 classic '70s into the '80s Shaw Brothers uh, kung fu action was insane, and Lau Kar Lung was one of the finest directors of it. And Eight Diagram Pole Fighter, probably, honestly, Jamie and I's favorite kung fu film. So if you haven't listened yeah. to that episode, patreoncom slash podcast. That was last week's episode. Uh, But moving on to this week, uh, continuing uh, a kind of nice trend that we haven't been able to do for a while, we have an episode that ties into the release of a new movie. New movies are coming out. New genre movies are coming out. Movies we're excited to see. Yeah, Uh, It's very beautiful. Hopefully we're not jinxing it by, you know, finally uh, timing all of these episodes that we had probably (laughs) set in stone like a year or two ago. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, shit. I mean, that Top Gun's finally going to come out, so we're finally going to do that Tony Scott episode (laughs) as well as the one that we got coming next week. Um, But yeah, so we, we have a very special episode that's been planned for a very long time. I know a lot of patrons have been very excited about it. So this week we are going to be talking about uh, Candyman from 1992 and Tales from the Hood from 1995. And to talk about uh, these two films, we have a special returning guest. Hasn't been on since the early days of the show, but many of you will know him because I know that a lot of people on our Discord, sometimes uh, his Discord gets brought up in ours. We have a lot of uh, (laughs) (laughs) members of both, we'll say. Um, But that is the uh, host of the Struggle Session podcast, Leslie Lee. Leslie, how are you doing? Doing great. Thank you so much for having me back. No, no, no problem at all. I mean, I, I, I didn't realize how long it had been since we had had you on because we've had a lot of guests, you know, probably some of them kind of come back on yearly. And I, I, I had to check the dates to be I was like, is that how long it's been since we've talked to Leslie? So I'm very well, glad. The, well, the thing <laughs> is, like every time I see you during the episode, I see it and it's like, damn, I wish they asked me to do that episode. Like, every <laughs> single, like you have done so many of my favorite movies uh, over the 
Like, actually, if if you showed me the list of the shows you've done and the list of the shows I've done to me before I start the show, I've been like, oh no, that's my podcast. Obviously, I, I'm, not, I'm doing you know, Lady Snowblood and stuff and fun stuff like that and uh, yeah. Prisoner Scorpion Seven Hundred One. I'm not having the fucking watch Star Wars Seven. <laughs> <laughs> Well, next Hell time we'll yeah, have well, you that, uh, decide the the films as well. That's that, that's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking. I was thinking that's why next time we got to reach out to you and we got to have you pick the films again. But we were very glad when you agreed to come on yeah. um, this episode because these movies are really good, and I I, I already knew that you were a fan of uh, of of Candyman. But yeah, maybe you can tell us just before we jump into them, like uh, what what's your relationship with these two films? Well, so. It's, so it's kind of complicated, right? Because so we're doing both of these because these are both considered, you know, black horror, right? Mm-hmm. But Candyman is not a black horror film. It stars a white lady. It's written by, it's directed by a British uh, director, white British director, based on a story by Clive Barker. But the thing mm-hmm. I always liked about, uh, you know, it's about Clive Barker. Um, and I got this from my older brother. He always had a sort of, especially, and at this time, I feel like his horror movie spoke to an urban audience that a lot of other stuff didn't. Like most black people I knew, like would watch a Hellraiser, you know, <laughs> would watch a Nightbreed. Even though there's not like a lot, these casts aren't diverse. They don't have a lot of black people in them. Candyman does, of course, but it felt like his horror just seemed a little bit more real, more urban, more based on day to day life compared to some of the other horror stuff so even yeah. though it's not really a I, I, I just view Candyman as just a horror film I view Candyman like you know Freddy Jason Candyman sort of thing but I see why people uh, view it as this sort of explicitly black horror film and it is one of the, the horror films that deals with you know class issues uh, specifically race issues specifically and talks about real shit that was happening to people at the time in the film mm-hmm. that's just good horror uh, that should what should be, horror should be all the time anyway yeah, um, but but it just so happens that Candyman has this reputation for being like a more explicitly political or social but if when you're watching the movie it's just a good horror movie based on real shit that people identify with there's no like you don't have to be trying to make a political statement mm-hmm. uh, to it it just came naturally to these two white Brits who have an understanding of class to you know to address these issues in it now tales from the hood of course very divot that is explicitly a black horror movie but what i love about it is as good as any white horror movie always has been and always will be a incredible special effects oh yeah oh yeah great storytelling all of it holds up i when when you're young and black and like this is a time when you like black people Black people weren't even on TV, you know what I'm saying? Like, you had mm-hmm. one or two sitcoms. You're like, BET had to exist because there weren't black people. Now, Tales from the Hood comes a little bit later, but I think people understand that, like, they didn't play a lot of black music videos on MTV, hip-hop. They they were, like, trying... They were st- The media was still trying to figure out hip-hop. So, for Tales from the Hood to come out, I remember we it being so popular because it was just as good as any is you know creep show or oh yeah tales uh tales from the crypt or the twilight zone it had all that budget and craft behind it 
and it still holds up to this day as one of the best um, anthology horror, horror films of all time. Absolutely excellent. It was a joy to watch again. And it is like explicitly political, like mm-hmm. in your face political. In, oh, yeah. Very unsubtle, but in a really endearing way. Yeah. Endearing <laughs> yeah. way, unsubtle, you know, heavy handed, but still analyzing multiple sides of the issue in a way that it, you know, is of all the issues that in a way that's not just polemical, you know, mm-hmm. like even like there's moments where you might feel sore, sorry or scared, scared for the racist cops or like the Klansman politician, you know, the movie still is a movie and doesn't just make, it's, it's very cartoonish in a lot of ways, but I think mm-hmm. actually the storytelling is, it, it takes the issues quite seriously. Yeah, Definitely. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I'm I'm very excited to dive into both of these with you. So we're gonna start off here. Uh, we're gonna go chronologically. We're gonna start off with Candyman. What's behind the mystery? You sick. What's behind the legend? Listen, he's under the bed. And most terrifying of all, come with me. What's behind the mirror? <laughs> He's here. Candyman, you don't have to believe. Just beware. All right, uh, we are talking Candyman, the 1992 American supernatural horror film written and directed by, as uh, Leslie pointed out, the Brit Bernard Rose and starring uh, Virginia Madsen, Tony Todd, Xander Berkeley, Cassie Lemons, Vanessa E. Williams. This is obviously based on a short story called The Forbidden, which I believe is included in his uh, Books of Blood um, catalog, oh, cool. which was very funny because we just we just talked about that really shitty Hulu series that they made. <laughs> out oh, yeah. of the oh no, it's bad. Reason. It's bad. Oh, I haven't gotten to it. Yet. No, yeah, it wasn't. I mean, there was there was there moments, you know a couple. But... You you could see uh, the Clive Barker in them, but it's yeah. very prestige TV polish um, in in a way that doesn't really suit Barker. I like, for example, like in this and like in the Hellraiser films, which they borrowed a lot of the make artists makeup artists from his Hellraiser films. Um, I love the really like gruesome textures um, of both this and that. And that movie just didn't have any of that, even though you could tell that, you know, the stories are coming from a place um, that that was intriguing. Um, and, 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 and same, and same here, even though, you know, this definitely is a, you know, a, a very thorough overhaul and rewrite of his material. As Leslie kind of pointed out, you know, there's there's a class based reality to this that has really, you know, gotten to a lot of people. And obviously they transpose it into a very sort of racial context in 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 Chicago in the housing projects and stuff. But the original story, which I've read, is like all about the British class system. Oh, okay. Um, and so and and so when when Rose was taking a trip to America, he I guess he kind of liked uh, he he kind of liked the look. He liked the architecture of Chicago, which you can tell by some of the shots that he chose in the oh, film. Yeah. But that, but that was what basically had him decide that he wanted to do this. He loved the tall skyscrapers versus these very sort of dilapidated, run-down buildings, like you know, not that far from them, close enough that you could look out your window and you could see them. Well, it's and I guess like, he kind uh, of saw that image, and he was like, "That is how I can visualize what Barker is getting at in this, you know, the short story that he wrote." 
And it's it's like how they uh, they introduced the film itself. I mean, the very first shot is that bird's eye view of Chicago going from one side of the city and then it bridges over to the next. And it just, I mean, it right away expresses how close these two places are together, but just how different they are with, uh, oh, I yeah. imagine, funding and, and other things of that nature. So... Um, it's a great, like, just visual representation of the the city um, right away as soon as the movie begins, and I loved that. And and how obviously um, heightened it is in terms of style right away too, with the Philip Glass, this very dreamy, very sort of like ominous, uh, sort of like chorus and a couple electronic sounds, but also yeah. some organ sounds and a mix of all of these different sounds going into this overhead shot, which then transitions into something that you know you're looking at something that is kind of obviously connecting these two locations together, but it's done in this kind of like alien vantage point you're not really used to seeing right. from like a grounded movie, and then all of a sudden it then cuts to you know like you have Tony Todd's like reverberated disembodied voice talking and you have that big wide shot of the bees as it slowly zooms into them I mean there's there's something to be said I guess on just how sort of um, gracefully and sort of art house uh, stylized Rose decided to take this material which I think has you know stood the test of time for for a lot of people I, I watched this movie uh, probably I think I watched this movie actually twice just just for this because I every time I watch this I keep wondering if this is like the five for me right um, yeah I have that same and I, th- thing. I, th- I think I, I think there's a couple things in the writing that kind of hold me back yeah. but the, the the style uh like absolutely just sucks me in every single time and and how well it's used to render this like gothic folktale kind of slasher that's taking place inside of a city which is just you know sort of things that you wouldn't normally combine with each other but is done really really well in the film yeah, and they don't waste a lot of time either. Like what, like you said, it has that that image of the the bees and Tony Todd's voice um, uh, uh, overlapping that. But then it goes right to the uh, the lead girl, and she's telling the story of Candyman already, or being told the story one one or the other. Um, and I just like how they set you into that urban legend setting right away. Uh, they don't do a lot of um, waiting. Uh, until until they reveal the the ghostly story that's at hand, and I just really appreciate that. It, it just hurdles you through this story, um, but there is still a lot of rich detail throughout it as well. For sure. Yeah, I, Were you going to say I, something, Lizzie? Yeah, I think it's uh, what really st- stood out to me watching this is just how beautiful this movie is, and how almost no movie now looks this good and has this much yeah. care put into anything in it. The $185 million Suicide Squad, one of the dullest, <laughs> lifeless, most lifeless movies I've ever seen. Like this movie <laughs> rewards you for actually looking at the screen because even if it's just two people talking in a room, they actually take the time to set yeah. lighting over eyes. They do these beautiful noir, film noir like shots of Helen and just delivering exposition, just rewarding you for not looking at your phone and actually watching <laughs> the movie, which is what movies used uh, to be like, like um, the shots of the city. Obviously we didn't have drones back then. They, for this, you know, little horror movie, they had to like invent technology to get those shots those aerial shots. Uh, I, I, mm. I wish I had the article up. But I was just reading it earlier. Like they had to do like some new never before done stuff to get those shots. It's so yeah, easy. They, because they, they, they do seem very steady for like a helicopter if that was what they were to opt yeah. for. So yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. So it was some new technologies. Like I, everything, every moment of this film 
is just has so much care put into it. Like it makes me mad that we lost this. Like it, even though I'm excited for the new Candyman, and it looks good. There's no way it's going to look this good. And I think that's a yeah. shame. I think that's a shame that we all know that even if it might might have cost three times as much, it's not going to look as good no matter what. Yeah, like I'm just thinking of of two uh, specific tracking shots that I'm actually I adore. Which uh, the first one is when she's in the the parking lot garage, and it just shows like the the emptiness at, uh, of the parking lot behind her as she's going to her car, and then Tony Todd shows up, and we'll and we'll get to that in more detail. But then another one is when she's in the uh, the the project housing, and she goes from inside the the project where. Um, you know, she meets the the woman, which once again we'll get to. But she goes outside and meets up with this child that's uh, telling her about a murder that happened to a young kid. And while she's walking, instead of just like them talking and walking, it's got this insane wide shot uh, where you can see the bathroom that he's telling the story about. And but in the background, oh, yeah. you just see the entire city, and it's just it's. I mean, it, you know, it's showing these um, rundown buildings but there is this like there's like this haunting beauty to some of these shots and um yeah it's it's incredible to look at and when and just watching this movie this is obviously a standout but i found myself over quarantine just watching a lot of 90s movies as they play on whatever showtime um hbo whatever whatever's on right and mm-hmm. i see run across these movies these pieces of it that like i never would have bothered with back in the day but when i look at them now i'm like wow this movie is so much more interesting than almost anything else coming out there was this one with jeff goble let me look up right it's it's an awful movie we would have said it was awful at the time i should i should say but it just looks fantastic i mean the first problem with it is is the name is so stupid (laughs) <laughs> Hideaway. Okay. So there's this Jeff Goldblum movie called Hideaway from 1995 based on the Dean Koontz novel. Jeff Goldblum's daughter is Alicia Silverstone in her first and Jeff Goldblum dies on the same night that Jerry Mas- Jeremy Sisto, very young Jeremy Sisto, dies who's a serial killer and they both come back to life bringing an angel and a devil with them <laughs> and they can see each other's visions and uh, and uh, Jeff and Jeff Goldblum has to try to save his 16 year old daughter, obviously playing against type as a loving father. Jeff Goldblum <laughs> trying to convince you that he's not more interested in hitting on his daughter than uh and they do do some confusing thing because he's like the serial killer sees the daughter and gets like horny for killing her but jeff goldblum thinks he might be the serial killer himself it's a very weird movie but the point is that like you see how i'm excited i am talking about this goofy ass movie that i watched for 90 minutes absolutely nothing script but it still had i'm gonna watch this this right now has so much fun stuff going on with fun characters ray dong chong is on it she's always great to see and it's just like there's this ps2 level cgi sequence of heaven well, yeah, it's, and it's hell. the i just looked it up it's the director of the lawnmower man yes and he does <laughs> the, and another really good one and it's just like even that crappy cgi is so interesting and will legitimately freak you out if you see it now even though it looks bad it looks like 
there was thought put into it and they were like okay the graphics are only this good how can we make this look like creepy and weird and still freak people out and they, they mm-hmm. did it and so I, I just went on that big long rant just to say I feel like especially with these mid-budget genre films it's so much aim for our buck uh, oh, when it yeah. came to the movie, and we didn't really appreciate it at the time, especially in the '90s. I think we just felt like, oh, this is, this is just like some direct to DV, uh, direct to VHS crap. We don't have to pay attention to it. But there's so much gold uh, out there. Absolutely, like especially with the like some of the practical effects just in this in this movie. One uh, part in particular was when, uh, and I'm once again. All of this is within plot, so I guess we'll have to get into a little more detail here. But eventually, you do see Tony Todd; like he's got a just a, a pile of bees coming out of his oh, mouth. Oh yes, and and I don't exactly know how they did it. I don't know if they convinced Tony to be able to. I can to tell be you. Like, oh, I okay. can tell. I would love I can to go know, into it. It's incredible. Well, let's get into the bees. So the bees are real. Um, okay, they, damn. they're young. They had to raise them. They had to especially breed them to be very young so that if they stung, they would be less likely to sting. And if this, they did sting, mm. it would be less likely, uh, to cause problems. Virginia Madsen, um, is allergic to bees. <laughs> um, and she also agreed to be covered in bees, ah, had bees put in their mouth. It took a long time to get the bees on them and even longer to get it off them. It was just, it was more of a tedious process and it was and for them they both said they just kind of had to get in a zen position because it felt like just having being tickled obviously right a lot when they were in your mouth and on your face (laughs) and you just kind of had to sit there be still and zen because of course if you panic they will sting they will attack right uh Tony Todd over the franchise did get stung about twenty five times, but he got a thousand dollar. He negotiated a thousand dollar bonus every time he got stung. <laughs> That's the way to do it. Nice job, Tony. Yeah, to- to- Tony Todd likes to joke that uh, the bees had a bigger trailer than he did on, uh, on, on the set of Candyman. Oh yeah, but, and um, they, yeah. I didn't mention, but they really took care of the bees. They like had special a uh, <laughs> vacuum cleaner to get them off without uh, hurting them. So yes, they took care of the bees as well. <laughs> yeah well and, and and it just speaks to again sort of like you know something that's visually interesting but is you know very clearly on a production like very arduous but to you know to commit to that because you know it's going to look great um yeah. and that's that's something that you know a lot of people cut corners on um these days especially so it's really nice to go back and you know watch watch this movie which i think a lot of people look at and they you know they they see you know they're like okay you know he's a you know he's a a ghost monster who comes out and it's a slasher and everything but shot by um uh anthony b richmond which i didn't realize until after the fact is actually the connection between these movies the same cinematographer shot both of these movies um Uh. and he's actually a british cinematographer uh who worked with nicholas roeg so he did like don't look now uh the man like very beautiful beautiful films and later in the 90s even he did ravenous which is a really good looking film as well oh wow he also had a really crazy career where by the 2000s he got into like um (laughs) like rom-coms and stuff he did like uh uh the same and a lot uh john tucker must die legally blonde i, I don't know wow. what you know he was just taking some 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 paychecks at a certain point but man this guy really really shot 
the hell out of this film. And they, again, they, they had like a really amazing concept for this because, you know, again, Barker, who we talked about when we did Hellraiser, he's all about taking these sort of like psychological issues and these societal issues that people are experiencing and fitting them as, you know, making them as physical and tangible as you can in terms of your story. And Bernard Rose, you know, very clearly believed in doing the same thing. He feels this with so much grimy detail and textures to the images, which just amplifies all the nastiness of some of the writing. Like, I'm always surprised every time I watch this at how, like, filthy this movie is. This movie includes, like, a child holding yeah. his crotch where his penis has just been cut off by the candy man in a, you know, a public washroom that Covered is just, like, blood. filled with shit and yeah. blood. Yeah. And <laughs> oh, my God. Like, it's just... It's 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 really really like like gross stuff and and you know for anyone who maybe I'm I'm hoping most people have seen it but if you haven't seen Candyman like you would be surprised that that is some of the content of the film based on the story which you know is kind of based in academia and follows Virginia Madsen's character who is literally just trying to write a thesis on you know sort of uh, folk tales and urban folklore and is uh, just uh, you know she she's willing to take it to the next level to uh, to write that really really good thesis. And it's definitely about a kind of, uh, you know, whether it was, you know, part of the original story or not, they very clearly, you know, wanted and they they emphasize as much as they can that this is very much a a white intellectual going into a, you know, majority black community and population and, you know, looking at a history of, you know, sort of. Uh, you know, Tony Todd brought it into the movie, but because he's the one who came up with the backstory for the Candyman. Oh wow! You know, a history of, of of both slavery and poverty and and all and and racial violence and how that has made its way into you know actually you know real estate and city planning and gentrification. At one point, she finds out that her condo that she probably spent uh, a lot of money on uh, was actually just a retrofitted uh, housing project that they realized was too close to the city and. And you could actually uh, see it uh, from the skyscrapers and stuff. So they were like, well, we don't want to look at that ugly thing. So let's just pretty it up and sell it to, you know, the grad students yeah. <laughs> or the professors. And so th- there's a lot of really interesting detail, obviously, in in, in, in the writing um, that, that's going on there. And yeah, Rose makes every opportunity, takes every opportunity he can to visualize it in ways that, you know, both get into like this realistic detail of, you know, like, for example, they actually did did go to this Cabrini Green project in Chicago and they shot on location, which was something that the the producers were very upset about. And they were like, why can't we just build this shit? Why do you want to actually? And he's just like, it's not going to have that same life. It's not going to have what I saw in it when I was driving right. past it. That's that. That's the feeling that I want for this film. And so, yeah, they had to like actually like go in and like, for example, when Cassie Lemons and Virginia Madsen first show up to the first time they go to it, all of those guys standing out front are just real locals oh, um, wow. who they had to like actually pay money to just be like, yeah, will you just like let us shoot here for a little while? We'll just give you some money and just, you know, you could just be in the movie and you can just be yourself. Oh, that's <laughs> killer. You know? I didn't know that. <laughs> Yeah, so you know, it, it, they they went uh, above and beyond to really get into, you know, uh, to to really explore these themes in a very tangible way, and then also to use the style to again to to heighten it. The one thing I really love about the Tony Todd character, um, is especially, is that if you just kind of 
take out some of the scenes where he is obviously just absolutely shredding someone's body. He's uh, shoving a, a hook up someone's rectum and pulling it up their spine. If you just like looked away from that, Tony Todd, and he says this all the time in all the interviews that he does, like he viewed this as like a romance story. Okay. He was, I mean, he, he I was like, I went into this where I was, where he was just like, I had this character who was filled with, with both rage and obviously the horrible racist violence that was done to him. Um, and also filled with longing and yearning for his lost love. And Virginia Madsen's character is supposed to kind of replace that in the right. modern day. Right. And so the way that he talks about it was that, you know, Bernard Rose had him and her do like ballroom dancing lessons together so that they could get this romantic physicality going when he picks her up. And he was right. just like, so the way that he sees it is, is he plays it, yes, where the style heightens, you know, the the reverb on his voice and how disembodied and ominous he kind of is. But all of the lines are like, come with me, be with me, Yeah, <laughs> you know, like, like this, this kind of stuff. So it, it, it's a, it's a very interesting clashing where you feel some sympathy, I think for the candy man. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you, you know, you're, you're, you know, completely horrified by the things that take place in the film. And when it goes genre movie mode, it doesn't, uh, you know, look away from that. That's one thing that I think Bernard Rose needs to be really credited with is that clearly he was coming at this from the point of view of I'm a serious artistic British filmmaker and I'm going to get the guy who shot Don't Look Now to shoot this film. And you would think with someone with that, I'm going to get Philip Glass to do the score. You would think with someone with that sensibility would be embarrassed that they're making a horror film. A lot of people in that time sometimes were. Right. right. And, and this guy absolutely was not. He was like, I'm going to make this as nasty and unappealing <laughs> and disgusting as I possibly can. And it, you know, it, it earns its, you know, slap or bonafides, even though, even if it's, you know, very thought through and stylistically rendered. Yeah. And a lot like shit, of when, 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 when Ted Raimi's blood, uh, or when Ted Raimi sees the blood coming up from the girl in like the opening story that she's being told and stuff like that, just really gross. Yeah. And I love that. It's also coming down from the ceiling. Like it's leaking through the ceiling in that yes. urban legend, which was great. Definitely yes. reminded me of uh, body double <laughs> a little bit. Just yeah. Well, and, and, and obviously too, it's so much about, you know, like the, the, the violence being done through the planning and the architecture and this stuff too, right? Like how right. it's actually seeped its way into the buildings and everything around them. Yeah. Like like Candyman literally pops out through the mirror in one of like the greatest jump scares of the 90s probably which is his hook just slamming through that mirror which starts like a 1 minute tracking shot of her running through her apartment and every single time she gets to an, a new escape point in the periphery in the background you can just see Tony Todd. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I uh I also love that that because it turns into this kind of um psychological game for the lead that that at a certain point, you don't quite know at at any point the Candyman could pop up and start killing people. Like for instance, when she eventually gets into the uh, uh, the hospital because they think that she's doing the murders that the Candyman is doing, she's just having a normal conversation with the doctor, just kind of like oh, finding out that she's been there for a month because she's been under heavy medication. And uh, and just as they're having a normal conversation, out of nowhere, Candyman just appears behind him out of the blue. Well, no, the, 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 that's when that's when she calls him, right? Oh, I th I'm sorry. I thought it was when they were having a discussion in the office. Oh, she calls. It is, him. but 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 she but she she tells the psychiatrist, "I can prove it. I can call him here right now." And then she looks in the mirror and she says, "Candyman" five times. Oh, and right. then there you're right. He just he just pops out of frame. 
But there yeah. is a pause be- be- before he comes out where you think, oh, nothing's going to happen. Because at that point in the movie, yeah. you're still deciding, oh, maybe she is just crazy. Because right yeah. before that, they tried, they showed the video of her freaking out about seeing Tony Todd in her hospital room, but nobody's there. So at that point, you can't think, oh, maybe this is just a psychological thriller and all the supernatural elements aren't real. And after she says Candyman that fifth time, they don't wait three seconds. They wait like four, just enough to throw you <laughs> yeah. off. And then Denny yeah. pops out. It's yeah, and, and he just rip. drives that hook through his back and oh pulls it all the way up and blood just like squirts around everywhere. And speaking of which, too, you you brought it up. I love that scene where he frames her for the uh, the, the dead dog and the missing baby because it, it starts with aftermath. him hypnotizing her in the parking lot. Right. Yeah. And then she just she passes out and she wakes up and she wakes up into this, you know, this very beautiful um, tracking shot that is just her covered in blood, the floor covered in blood. She opens up the door and the camera just sort of like on the steady cam just kind of or maybe he's even just handheld just follows her uh as she looks down and she sees you know a decapitated dog head next to a meat cleaver and for some reason she decides she's going to pick it up i guess because she's scared and she thinks someone else might be in there actually and she's doing in the something. movie she's in the movie she has to pick it up <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course of course but she she picks it up and then moves in and sees that you know there are the the woman who lives in the project who she was recent she was you know just previously interviewing for her thesis about you know about the uh the murder of the the woman named ruthie um in the project there which apparently by the way it was a real murder and uh part of the inspiration for the whole bathroom mirror thing was that in one of those housing projects in chicago there was someone who actually did break through from one apartment to the other using that trick and killed someone oh wow uh, which well, was a, apparently well before we don't okay. want to gloss over that because it's actually a really you know, tragic uh story and you can read this on uh, Ch- chicago readers a woman named ruthie may mccoy and mm-hmm. she called so she she was a woman black woman who's uh, had some issues with mental illness but was getting better and she called the police saying that some people are trying to break into my apartment through the um through the mirror, uh, through my bathroom mirror. Yeah. And they thought she was like crazy uh, because, you, but that is actually true. You can, because of the way those buildings were designed, it was that easy to get to someone else's uh, apart, into someone else's apartment. And so when the cops showed up there late, they knock on the door and they decide that for, uh, and they don't have, hear any answer and they decide to just leave. <laughs> like like they're trying to figure they yep. like they can't find the super to you know open up the place so the cops just leave and she ends up bleeding to death and dying uh, uh, and nobody finds her until the, uh, the next day. Wow, that's insane. Yep, yep. So th- th- that's what's very interesting about this is that you know very clearly Rose saw this in the way that it looked and you know some of the history of it and that it, was why he wanted to transpose the story well, actually, because like that 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 makes its way into the movie right it's where actually not they, get, it's, they end up. It's honestly not giving Rose that much credit because if if you go back and read the article about Ruthie uh, May, Ray, uh, May McCoy, and I think anybody who's over the age of say thirty remembers how people reported on housing projects, black on black crime. They talked about us like we were basically animals, and you could, even when you're reading those original articles, you read that that's not in Candyman. That's not how he looked at that. He doesn't 
pass judgment on people in the projects for the violence that's going on there. He actually points mm-hmm. to the real causes of poverty, of class structure. So it's not even it, mm-hmm. it, it, it would be it would be it's giving it's letting too many people off the hook to say that oh he was talking about these real issues of the time, but he was talking about them in the way that the nightly news wouldn't for years later. Like right, even right, right. even in your life, Definitely. like Black Lives Matter, like no, he like this, you know, schlocky horror film had an understanding and sensitivity of these issues that you couldn't get until maybe five years ago from the New York, if that. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the, that's why you'll hear the characters go like you know, like uh, so many characters say to Virginia Madsen's character, just like you know, we 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 called for help and no one came and and no no one got here. And then the first time that she's attacked by a dude pretending to be the Candyman in the bathroom and just like you know, given a big bruise, yeah. you know, a, a white woman in the washroom, uh, instantly the entire brigade is in. Someone is arrested. Yes. You know, there it's it's immediately a top priority that she got punched in the face and she calls it out. <laughs> and she says, "Wow." Oh yeah, they they all, people have been murdered, but I get hit and everybody's here. Like yeah, brilliant commentary, and I I feel like even the average movie that comes out today does not have that level of realism or understanding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Yeah, I, I think I think it, the, this movie really absorbs the you know sort of the, the location and the history that that you know they they opted to you know uh, you know because you you could look at it and you could say you know they just cynically threw on this stuff onto a story that didn't have it but I think that you know it's it's fairly well thought through in the way that they actually do apply all of this um, stuff together and the way also that it you know that despite the fact that it's you know very very gruesome and nasty that it it has moments of you know, uh, you know, thoughtfulness and sensitivity in that in that kind of way as well, and that's why I, you know, you can I, have I, both. I do. You can have both. Yes, you don't have. You don't. <laughs> it's crazy. You have, thought. Yeah, you can have good <laughs> politics and not be a fucking square. Who thought it? Yeah, yeah, and I I really do like um, you know a, a lot of how much this sticks close to just you know Virginia Madsen's you know it, 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 it sort of psychological breakdown experience with what she's seeing because one obviously she's confronting you know very realistic political suffering of people and that's something that she's investigating but then she's also looking at it as a kind of a story a folklore and part of the film is obviously that you know the the, the candy man only really exists and is this tangible thing because people believe in him and that's why he is as gruesome as he is because he wants people to keep telling his story so that he can remain immortal in 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 his own way and he wants her to join him in that but i i i do like that you know that there's you know, there, there's kind of like, you know, this experience that she's having is one that is being, you know, it's, it's both fantastical and tangible at the same time. And it's very, you know, hit on in the style. One uh, sequence I really love is when, you know, she's, she's, you know, uh, she, she just had the conversation, I think, with the mother of the baby, Anthony, who's the one who gets kidnapped later by Candyman. And he's, you know, she's telling the story about how she heard Ruthie screams through the walls and she called 911 and nobody came. And, you know, everyone is terrified about these things that can come through the walls. Um, 
cut to she's at a very nice dinner with like these snobby professors, including her boyfriend uh, or her husband, actually, is one of them. Trevor, played by Xander Berkeley, who I always think of as uh, the guy who gets uh, who cucks Al Pacino in uh, Heat. Um, <laughs> and and, and, and Al, Al Pacino yells at him uh, about, you know, you can have my wife, but you can't have my fucking TV or whatever it is that he says. Um but she 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 has this conversation where she's you know given in exposition the backstory of the Candyman, which again you know they they kind of tossed around different various ideas, and ultimately Tony Todd came up with this this very you know this son of a former slave who became this artist for you know sort of like rich white folks, and eventually fell in love with one of the uh, daughters that he was paid to paint, and you know wanted to get married to her, had a child with her, and. And, you know, he suffered, you know, a, a lynch mobbing because of it, including obviously having honey put on him and being stung to death, uh, having his arms sawed off with a rusty blade um, and uh, being burnt to death, which is all things we end up seeing over the course of the film done to various people. But as that story is being told to her, the, the, the choice of shot is just this one slow zoom on her face where the lighting switches so that it's just a shot of her eyes as she's smoking and it slowly moves in as she can hear all of the sounds of the history just getting yeah. into her brain. She can hear the screams of Tony Todd having his arms sawed off. She can hear the bees. She can hear all of this stuff. And there's something just so interesting to me, I guess, about this idea that, you know, uh, a story could become something physical to someone else. And that is something that the movie deals with a lot and, you know, how it is to her. And it becomes a situation on, you know, is this a kind of, you know, this is a real historical racial violence and pain that people are experiencing. And is it people coping with it by coming up with a story? And then it comes back into something tangible or is he a physical manifestation of that, you know, that rage or that longing? And, you know, they, they, they kind of leave it a little uh, ambiguous overall, because by the end of the film, there is a little bit of a, um, you know, uh, <laughs> the, the, the Tony Todd, you know, needs to be defeated and the curse needs to continue. I think I think some some of the writing, I think, gives way to a little I, bit of the genre sensibilities where yeah. it's just like we weren't really sure exactly how to bring these ideas completely home. Um, it did kind but of honestly, like by, the, by the time it hits there, it doesn't matter to me. I think it's just so well realized in the filmmaking. Yeah, it did kind of feel like they added the whole uh, shitty cheating husband thing so that they could have her little twist of I'm the ghost now at the end for him a little bit. It felt mm -hmm. it felt just slightly disconnected to the Candyman thing, even though I do understand that that I guess, you know, in a way, the Candyman character was trying to keep this curse eternal and, and everlasting. Um it, it it did feel just a little bit tacked on when she like shows up in his bathroom and you know kills the guy. I don't know. It felt it felt just a little disconnected. Well, to I, what I, the I rest definitely of the felt it just kind of lost some of the thread on the idea, which That's is you know, I mean, if, if yeah. you're trying to go if you're trying to go with the idea that you know this is a thing that is happening supernaturally because of a community's pain being made manifest into this story. Um, you know, what does it, it mean now that she is the martyr or she is the character and I, I I wasn't quite sure exactly what they were trying to get at with that other than you know it kind of makes sense 
in a genre context of, yeah, you know, the curse asshole. just keeps transferring and, you know, and, you know, it has that, uh, that it follows kind of thing where it just, you know, it just keeps going. It just um, feels less meaningful than Candyman's motives. You know what I mean? That's, I guess that's definitely, what, that's what yeah. I find it a, a bit silly compared to everything else. Mm-hmm. But, but I gotta say like everything, even that stuff that I don't think, uh, works completely in the writing. It's still well done. Like yeah. I, I really like like the big, the big finale, like where she goes into his lair and they have like the big 360 romantic shot around them, and he reveals his rib cage filled with bees and starts kissing bees into her mouth, and then you cut to the overhead shot of the giant like funeral pyre, basically that they are making to trap the candy man and burn him again. Uh, but then, you know, now it has the baby in it and she has to like crawl through it and bring the baby out. And they always include that nasty detail of it too, where like, you know, her hair gets fucking like burned off as she's carrying that baby out. She gets Anakin Skywalker yeah. <laughs> revenge of the Sith oh, a little bit <laughs> as she's crawling out and, you know, she dies from the severe burns and, you know, and I, and you know, the, obviously again, the music really kicks in there as well, you know, like, so they, they spent long enough, I think developing the emotion between, you know, Candyman longing for this uh, woman who reminds him of his lost love um, and then also you know sort of like the gruesomeness of continuing this story and you know trying to you know have this legendary burning where the baby is dead and they're both dead and everyone talks about how the candy man did it and now they live you know forever but she you know kind of defies him and you know just becomes the candy man herself and i do like that they candy woman when a, mur- is a mural says. is created for her as well where the candy man's once was <laughs> right right that was i, 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 I love like the, the production design of that layer by oh, the way with yeah. all the with all the they, they i think uh, the production designer mentioned that they basically that's one of the few things that they they built uh, obviously <laughs> where the, but they they basically built it at, as if it was the above rundown apartments at Cabrini Green where they said right. that they they took a lot of photos of the ones that weren't in, inhabited that they were actually like the walls were crumbling and stuff so they wanted to make like this weird sort of quasi church mm-hmm. to the Candyman, where they have, you know, sort of like Sistine Chapel paintings of of his story on the walls. And right. they had this backstory that they don't really touch on in the film where they kind of said, you know, what if some of the people who, you know, believe in him and keep him alive, you know, they worshipped him here. This was like where they they remembered his story and drew his pictures and said his name and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But you, you totally get that from the design of the layer. You yeah. don't need anyone to give you the exposition on that. Yeah, one of, I mean, I love the uh, the shot of her entering into that lair and in order for her to do so she has to crawl out of his mouth like the the beginning of his mouth it's such a great image yeah it's perfect like like he's already consumed her kind of thing and and uh she's on for the ride so yeah it's 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 really really good stuff yeah yeah did you have any thoughts about the ending leslie um no i i i enjoyed it i thought it was fine that transferred to her and that her and now that you say Helen in the mirror instead of the Candyman, like that's just good <laughs> <You're right. laughs> horror uh, to me. And it seemed like yeah. the point that Candyman was trying to get at, I, the line that stuck with me is, is so much better to not exist, to just be a myth uh, to Helen. Mm, right. And it, fi- it seemed to me that it was more like she, her becoming, you know, the spirit of vengeance was like an upgrade for her from her life. Because yeah, now more she. power there. 
Yeah, there's more power there, and she can right the wrongs. Because you saw when the people showed, uh, when the people from the project showed up at uh, her funeral, they all gave the evil eye to her husband, right? And then she mm-hmm. comes back and kills him. And so I can see that as now she's the spirit of vengeance for this uh, project, and maybe she'll do things differently than Candyman. Candyman, who just was kind of black pilled and taking out his, you know, violence <laughs> on anybody who crossed his path. Maybe Helen will use it viciously. Mm-hmm. Why well, I, I do like Tony Todd's uh, like whole pitch that he gives her about how good it is to, you know, sort of like live in other people's dreams and all of these sort of stylistic choices that kind of, you know, sort of uh, are, are trying to get her um, in, involved in that, like some of the collapsing of the space. I think about like the scene where she's being um, driven from the hospital back to the uh, the the apartment or the condo, and there's a part where she's in like the back of the the car, and she is basically the the shot is a dolly shot that's basically walking her through like the actual layer and the halls. Like basically, she's in the back of the car, but she physically feels like she's back in Cabrini Green, and then eventually that all collapses into like a shot of the white sky that completely overpowers her, which then combines with the hospital, like her psychological state and how it's reflected in 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 the filmmaking and how she's be basically being asked to be in this you know this other world this other realm um is uh you know very very well done but yeah i, I think that this movie really really works surprise i mean i think it's become like a cult favorite to a lot of people for you know very obvious reasons that as leslie pointed out it's obviously just a very well done horror story yeah. regardless of the th- the ideas that it's trying to get at but the ideas are also there it's well thought through and the style is all there that's the big one um for me is that you know i think that in, in there's there's a lot of very uh graceful sort of formal elegance to the whole thing it it, it switches very knowingly between like these very artful compositions that are taking in sort of like the architecture and uh the space um, and then, you know, doing these really horrifying, uh, tracking suspense sequences where she is, you know, being chased by the candy man and, you know, the, um, like the most classic slasher sense imaginable, like some of the use of the, um, you know, doing a wide shot where Tony Todd just appears at the, the end of the hall in the periphery. It's like classic John Carpenter stuff. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, to have a movie that is doing both of those things at the same time and doing both well. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to come by a lot of people just, you know, now they like to just do, you know, we're kind of a horror movie, but mostly an art house movie. When you think about it, we're, we're, we're not, we're, you know, we're not going to stoop down to the, 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 the low art genre fare. <laughs> and, uh, this movie just doesn't do that at all. You know, it is, um, it is a Gothic folktale slasher kind of story with all the, you know, graceful compositional architecture and dreamy, gory horror, uh, that you could ask for. And again, that Philip Glass score, it's an all timer. Yeah. One of my favorite yeah. scores. I, I I listen to it just all the time, like the piano and the pipe organ the and organ, the chorus yeah. stuff. The, the the switching between the major and the minor key stuff in it yeah. is just unbelievable. It, it, it's very trance like, which is very well suited to uh, you know uh, the Candyman kind of hypnotizing you into this dream world. And you know right. the film, the both both the style and the score definitely you know do that to you as an audience member a bit. Yeah, this this film does have kind of like a hypnotic quality to it, I find. Um, 
Yeah, I would. I'd give this like a like the high four. Uh, I absolutely. Oh yeah, I forgot to mention. Yeah, same here. I'd absolutely. This gets the high four. I, I watched it twice just to see if it if it does. It doesn't. I, I I feel like maybe even with another watch, it could do it. But yeah, yeah. high four for me. Yeah, I've seen this. I think this is my third or fourth time, and every single time I like it a little more. Um, I will say that, and I just I love the way that uh, they shoot uh, Chicago in this. Um, it, it, it's 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 like it's gorgeous, and then at, at, and then at times also just showing the uh, dilapidated buildings. It, it's it's obviously gorgeously shot, but it just it, it shows definitely a sadness uh, with a community that isn't being uh, properly taken care of, um, and then to connect that with a incredibly. Uh, visceral and violent ghost story that also is somehow wrapped up in kind of a uh uh love in a way um is is something else it i just it's a it's a very hauntingly beautiful film and i and i think everyone should definitely check it out it's 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 great so yeah four out of five for me yeah for you leslie me oh i would have to give it four and a half out of five Mm -hmm. uh every time i watch it i like it more and this is going to end up all-time favorite horror. I think it's really, really excellent. It does almost everything I can think of well and does so many great things. That I, I, there's very few movies that I think, could. even from the era, I think if you go shot for shot, you know, there's very few movies around this time that look as good, that are this evocative and horrible. Uh, I think it's very much underappreciated. Absolutely, absolutely, and I, I, I have to say too before we wrap up that you know the, the the all those creepy overhead shots of the skyscrapers and the expressive like graffiti murals and the expensive condo surfaces that you know give way to just this dirty crumbling bricks that they're covering up like all of that stuff is so like I don't know why there's not more films that do stuff like that that actually use their you know their their sets and their mise-en-scene and stuff like that to actually get at what the story is actually saying and the fact that this movie did not pass up any opportunity to visually express the underseen horror that is you know uh, you know not just a dude being lynched but of living in the shadow of white real estate development is like some Something that you know, for some reason, it doesn't occur to a lot of people to do anymore, and I need to see more of that. Yeah, like one shot I just want to say uh, to to finalize it, I guess, is the one where it has the trash heap and it's on fire, and Helen and the baby and Candyman are inside. But in the background, you can see all of the like you know pristine skyscrapers of Chicago in in mm-hmm. the uh, the actual like deeper city. Um, and it's just such a contrast there. That one shot I, th- I found was was beautiful, but also you know uh, sadness is involved as well. Yeah, it, it, it's a movie that has that, and also has um, shit covered walls everywhere, which I had <laughs> yeah. a great time listening to the production designers discuss how many different kinds of shit they had to present them with to smear the walls <laughs> with. So you know, this is the kind of things that were on their mind. Both you know, very very you know, elegant uh, kind of camera work and, you know, thoughtful ideas and just the most disgusting textures you could possibly think of. This has all of it. So if you haven't seen Candyman, definitely give it a, a look, especially because there's a new Candyman out in theaters right now. Yeah. And uh, it's pro- supposedly a quasi-sequel uh, or a, a late sequel, legacy sequel, whatever you want to call them. Uh, so now is a good time. Uh, but yeah, that being said, I think that wraps it up here for Candyman. We're going to be right back and we're going to be talking about Tales. From the hood. And executive producer Spike Lee. 
will take you to the outer limits of the inner city. From the hood, chill. Or be chilled. I mean, I don't need to be hearing this, man. Written and produced by Darren Scott. Written and directed by Rusty Cunder. All right. Uh, we are back and we are talking Tales from the Hood, the 1995 uh, horror comedy. Uh, anthology film uh, directed by Rusty uh, Cundiff. Uh, I'm not sure if I got that right. And uh, executive produced by uh, Spike Lee. The film, obviously, for anyone uh, un- unfamiliar with it, um, is a series of uh, you know uh, short horror stories that kind of have that sort of uh, that have a wraparound uh, story to them. Uh, it's going back to kind of like not even uh, creep show, but even older than that. It's going back to like the old school. Obviously, it's a big Tales from the Crypt reference, but also like things like uh, Dead of Night uh, is like a big reference point for it as well. Like one of the the OG horror anthologies, which kind of you know kind of saw their way back uh, to life after the popularity of creep show where they made like creep show two and they even in the 90s they managed to get like uh john carpenter and george romero to come back and do one you, you might remember that one jamie body bags oh yeah that, yeah. They, that, that they did that was which fun. uh not as good as this film but the the, no. the first one that john carpenter did uh does have a really awesome kind of like campfire bedtime story quality to it, it reminded me a little bit of you know him going back to like the fog days yeah um and, uh, you know, speaking of, you know, we would just tie this into Candyman and like folklore and stuff. What, what's interesting about Tales from the Hood is that obviously, as Leslie kind of pointed out, this takes a a very overtly unsubtle political stance on every single one of its of its horror stories. And I was reminded of the lesson that uh, Trevor is giving at the beginning of Candyman, where he describes it as, you know, it's, it's modern oral folklore, but also the unself-conscious reflection of the fears of urban society is, is what he says. And if there was ever a movie that like took, uh, you know, very explicitly like in the headline kind of political stories and then rendered it into, you know, really, really well-crafted little horror stories that as Leslie mentioned earlier too, absolutely do stand up to, you know, some of the greatest horror anthology films. This honestly, I might even, I think I might even like this more than I like a lot of the other ones. Yeah. I think that like, this is better than body bags. Yep. Uh, this is better than dead of night for sure. Um, I, I haven't watched a lot of the OG tales from the crypt. So that's something I need to catch up on. Yeah, and, but too. Jamie, I think you even prefer this to like creep show, right? Yep. Yeah, I do. I think that uh, like, I'd have to really look at the list of anthology films I've seen, but this is like gotta be top three, if not the, my favorite. So yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the big thing is is that just the consistency of them and the, yeah. and the uniqueness oh, yeah. of each one. Because um, we'll, we'll break down each individual one because you know, each one is sort of centered around a topic. One kind of addresses police corruption. One addresses domestic abuse. One addresses like uh, uh, racism and white supremacy. And uh, one addresses, uh, you know, sort of like gang, uh, violence. gang violence and, um, you know, again, white supremacist violence as well. So there, you know, each one kind of takes a very specific uh, subject and 
what's very interesting is that a lot of the time you would think, well, the subject then dictates the actual genre that they're doing. Um, but each one is done in like a very different kind of, of genre as well. Like the first one almost gets to like, like action horror heights. The second one gets kind of more like this more sort of, um, you know, sort of like domestic, uh, childhood kind of like horror movie. Like I think about the kid hiding from like the, this like werewolf monster creature trying to break into his room and like the lighting from the hallway leaking into his room and that. Yeah. And like, that's a very different style than, you know, sort of like the, the white supremacist, uh, political one where yeah. it's like, that one's more like Stuart Gordon's dolls, which is a movie we've covered on this show. And we had a blast talking about all the different ways that you can do POV shots of a little tiny <laughs> stop motion doll running to kill someone. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, this film does all of these different styles well. And yes. that's something that once again, you can't always say for people who attempt these anthology films. Uh, but uh, Leslie, what's what's your experience with this film? I mean, I've always watched it. Always, it's always on the top of Yaunt's uh, VHS player, uh, <laughs> a copy of this. Um, you you always I, and what stands out to me, like you said about the different styles and the way it cover it does everything well. Like you look at the the most tales from the crypty one is like the white supremacist David Duke guy, right? Other ones, yeah. like as you said, like they're this, they're their own thing. And the last tale, I think, explicitly, I'm not sure how many things you can compare it to, because there are references to something like a Clockwork Orange, but it, but like it's about Angela Davis like torturing a prisoner until he like try gets woke. Like showing him the <laughs> error of his ways. Like I don't know what other kind of horror story you can really compare that to. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, no, the, some of the imagery in it. The only thing I could clock because I, you know, I was watching some of them and I was like, I can see some of the things that they pulled from from some of these stories, um, especially too in in that first one with the police corruption because it literally just pulled kind of from like some of the uh, really really sleazy '80s cop movies a little bit too. Like there's the the Wings Hauser uh, appears as like the the greasiest cop you've ever seen, so <laughs> large, and we've talked about him before because he was absolutely horrifying he's as the villain maniac. in that movie vice squad yeah he's oh like God. the dude's an unhinged crazy man so as soon as i clocked that they you know wings hauser wasn't a huge actor so the fact that they had wings hauser in that movie i was like okay so this one <laughs> is like a horror uh vice squad kind of moment yeah. um but yeah with with that last one i was like some of the imagery of kind of like where the prison kind of looks like this castle and it kind of has some of like you know even the torture stuff has kind of like this mad scientist element i thought oh, they were definitely. going back to like like old monster movies or something yeah, like that but yeah these- other than that i couldn't clock some of the you know like what else what other movie i've seen that's even remotely like that movie <laughs> yeah it feels like he's just going deeper and deeper into like hell of some kind he like at a certain point he's walking and he sees just body bags being pulled uh, by like some wheel cart and things like that like it's just absolutely <laughs> like, so hooks, it is yeah. a bit Jacob's Ladder it's a bit Jacob's Ladder a there. little bit yeah it, it yeah. does have that going for it but man it just you don't expect to see that in a horror anthology and it feels it feels like so real and dealing with this real conflict and pain is very black issues like when he meets that white supremacist and the white supremacist is like oh no man me and you good but you you kill a bunch of niggers too and I'm like like Damn, that's that's just something a white filmmaker can't 
can't go. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, definitely. It's so dark. Yeah, well, <laughs> just can't go there and doesn't, just not going to have the sensitivity where even though he still is this piece of shit, he still gets the opportunity to say, hey, this, I am the nightmare created by the society. And all Angela, the Angela Davis uh, stand-ins has to say is, well, at some point you got to take responsibility for yourself or uh, you're going to die yourself. And he dying and there's is no real like happy ending or resolution or clear cut oh this is the you know intellectual upright black way of dealing with these things that's just not the perspective that rusty uh, comes with uh, i want to mention the reason he can i, I think pe- he's so good at handling all these different styles uh, well, not the reason, but an example of it is he directed 26 episodes of the Chappelle show where he's doing oh, like, wow. oh, which is, shit, I which didn't is know a that. pretty well made uh, TV show, uh, sketch That's comedy an, TV it show. It is, absolutely. handled a lot of different <laughs> styles and genres. And it just shows like his level of talent there that I don't really think was tapped by Hollywood. He did was able to get um, two sequels to Tales from the Hood made in the past couple of years. I haven't had a chance yeah. to uh, watch them yet. I hope they're, they're pretty good, but he's obviously someone that has a lot of talent and if Hollywood was not as racist, we would be talking about him as much as we talk about Carpenter probably. That was, I mean, when I first saw this, because the first time that I saw this movie was actually a year or two ago. Uh, and when I saw it, I was shocked that more people didn't talk about it because I just felt it was right up there with all the other like 80s and 90s horror movies that everybody constantly I mean, discusses. Let, let's be um, real. Like when people hear the name Tales from the Hood, they don't think, you know, body bags, creep show. Tell, right. You know, tell, they think a uh, scary movie. You know, they think like some sort sure. of silly black knockoff parody. I I, I I think people can be honest with themselves and admit that when they see Tales from the Hood and the skull with the gold tooth and the sunglasses, they think this is going to be less than. How could you not, if you grew up in America, how could you not see that and assume that this is going to be a less than, less intellectual, less thoughtful, less political? When, it's, of course, it's the exact opposite. It's more thoughtful. Than oh, yeah. More intellectual than a lot of stuff while still being fun and also really nailing the special effects you know like really yeah. doing the horror oh, stuff yeah. right like i even like i i feel like with a lot of the new kind of horror where it's trying to be politically conscious they're not nailing the horror element as much they're they're narrowing their their they got the social part but not the thriller part and i think tales from the hood by all means nails all the horror and the thriller elements that it's going for yeah. Oh, yeah. Like I, I love the 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 crazy place. I mean, it, it sets you up like pretty much near the beginning with you know sort of like the tone that it's going for, like the wraparound segment. Which a lot of the time too, when you watch these movies, the wraparound segment isn't good, but the wraparound segment in this is even it good. Is. Yeah, that's You know, is 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 a, a testament to how well done this is. Like Clarence Williams the third, just absolutely hamming it. R.I.P. R.I.P. Of, like of Lost Legend. R.I.P. Yeah. Lost in this yeah. Year. He's got yeah, as. As the eccentric owner of this funeral home named Mr. Sims, and you know he's got like this olive green, uh, you know, sort of like Mr. Glass looking suit on, and uh, he's got like this cane, and you know these guys are there to pick up drugs, and he's like, oh, you guys are looking for drugs? I got some embalming fluid, and he's just like really hamming hamming it up, and he's the 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 whole point is obviously that this is then structured around, you know, he's going to show these three drug dealers who came 
in to pick up the the drugs that they're going to take back out. But uh, while they're walking through, he's going to deliver them some stories on, you know, the various bodies that are, you know, in his funeral homes and how they got there. And, you know, it's very specifically, you know, he's got the bodies of all these various black men who have died. Um, and, uh, and sorry, I just had, I had to throw w- some shade much better than the framing of body bags. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, John. Oh, I'm yeah. sorry. It's, no. it's cause it's the same setup, but like You're this right. one is just so much better. Oh yeah. No, you're, you're right. Like I, like we actually did body bags as one of our live watches and we had fun watching it, oh, but yeah. like, it's not, it's not the, it's just not this, uh, they're the, the, the shorts, even though they're kind of goofy and still kind of fun. Like the idea of what, uh, Mark Hamill getting a rapist eyeball put in his <laughs> head and then becoming a, a rapist or a killer, you know, like it's just like the, in, in concept, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's entertaining, but it's not as thought through as a lot of these are and you know uh, un- unfortunately other than I think the first uh, Carpenter one in there the the craft isn't you know as yep. up to uh, up to par as as they are here like this this first one about police corruption where it's just this young black cop who's you know been taken in by this you know this white this white uh, partner for a routine traffic stop where they basically just beat and uh, billy club this civil rights activist and and councilman for you know uh, investigating them for corruption a community organizer then, you know, blatantly admit to yeah <laughs> literally like a young obama if he was actually like about it yeah, <laughs> and then they it, don't they like frame his suicide right with one of like the just most disgusting portrayals too. Like they they inject him with uh, they put a needle in his arm and send the the car off the off the dock. Yeah, yeah, because because they 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 want his reputation to be tarnished so that people look at right. the civil rights activists and they go, well, that guy was a hypocrite. Yeah. We don't need to listen to anything that he had and, to say. It's worth pointing and out that, that that guilt that's a real thing oh, that happened to civil rights like leaders. That's like literally a real thing that happened to them. Being having drugs planned. I mean, that was Cointel's pros like modus operandi, like planning drugs on people, getting community leaders. That is just a thing, and or uh, yeah. people. A lot of people might not remember that. Um, get the name. The politician, black politician, passed away a couple of years ago. He had the comic book written about him. I, his name, John Lewis. Yeah. So people, a lot. Of, so John Lewis is a famous civil rights leader and known for being, you know, a politician. But a lot of people don't know that the way he got into office was actually by smearing another black candidate, a more not necessarily radical, but more left-leaning candidate as possibly being a drug user in order to win the white vote. So John, so John Lewis, who is known as this historic, you know, civil rights leader, mm-hmm. pro-black black leader, actually used some of the politics that you see in this film uh, to smear another activist. So this is like a this even like the, that little small detail about a local polit- black politician being associated with drugs or um, mm-hmm. sex work or anything like that, it, game stuff like that. Those are just real stories that we were reading in our newspaper. And we can never know if it was a real thing, if they were being framed by the cops, if they were being framed by a political rival. It, it, we just never knew. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's very interesting to see this movie, you know, like to again, take that in and then render it in, you know, a very explicitly suspenseful little short story like this. Cause it's, it's really horrifying when, you know, he, he's sitting there, the, the black cops trying to like, you know, thinking about calling this in and, and, and telling other people what happened to it. But they were like, no, 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 we, you know, we, we stick together, cut the shit. Like we have to, you know, there's a, there, there's, we need to have a form of, of unity where it's us against them. Um, and, you know, they are literally just beating this man, filling him up with heroin and then killing him and then throwing him in the river all in, you know, the, the name of kind of like an optics game because yeah. they don't want to be shown to be corrupt, to be, you know, stealing evidence what? and selling yeah, drugs, selling which drugs. they are doing. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Which they did do. That's why they have the drugs <laughs> to use on him. Like, yeah. And, and, and also, you know, you, you have someone like wings Hauser too, who is like the really nasty one who's doing all of this stuff too. Like, you know, he, he really makes you like hate him. Like when he walks over and you know, they, I think, um, it's, it's supposed to be one year later on the anniversary of what the cops did to this civil rights. Yeah. By leader. the way, I just want to mention, I felt so happy when they just jumped ahead a year in this because I feel like I, I'm so used to watching stuff on Netflix and TV shows like no we would need to spend like a whole like hour explaining everything he went through uh, between the time right. of death and this, the night where the anniversary and most other things there was like no it's a year later now here's the important thing that's going to happen you don't have to see him turn in his badge do this do that do the other thing right right like just show him yeah, with a bottle it, of whiskey it, 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 you, and that's you, you, all we need to know. Exactly. You get it. You, you know that he's like this drunk walking around town. He's looking at a, you know, at, at a mural of this political leader and the thing is like coming to life and, you know, telling him that he needs to, you know, bring, uh, you know, all the people who did it to his, his grave, bring them to he me. He sees him on a cross. What he says. Oh, he that's such the a cross, good touch. Yeah. The cross is such a good The imagery talk. is so good. And which is really, you know, kind of edgy because this is a movie oh, yeah. made for a black audience. Lots of, you know, but hey, he got away with it. He did it in the, he did it in a way that didn't seem to piss off your, your grandma. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, 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 and it, it, it just, you know, again, it's a physical manifestation of, of his guilt. He sees him as a martyr who died for this thing, but you know, he's not going to be known as that because of what these cops did. So he brings them to the cemetery and the cops are like pissing on his grave. And you know, there's the sense of mood is like the lightning is striking in the background. And then it just goes crazy. This is all a long winded way of getting to what Leslie's been talking about, sort of like how good the effects work is in this movie when he just like reaches up and grabs that dude by the balls from inside (laughs) the grave and like drags him down and everything it's sick it looks so good like like there's there's this awesome like overhead shot that then drops into a low angle shot uh just in time for you to see that hand reach out and grab him and smash his head all on the tombstone and the and also the image of cops just unloading their pistols into the tombstone (laughs) as well (laughs) also when they're driving away and he somehow gets on top of the roof and they have that great shot of him looking through the windshield and he's got the like blue eye contacts and he's like yelling at them and all that there's yeah there is like like a, it, it turns into like a zombie action movie yeah, for like a, a there's minute. A, there's, a, it's, there's a very high energy level to the filmmaking, especially in this uh, in this skit in particular when the when the action starts to build. I also like when uh, this is before they kill him, but 
I like the the accents on some of the violence that they do. Like right before he punches one of the cops in the face, the reason he does that is because they toss his head through the fucking window, like the car window, and they do this yeah. shot from inside the car, and it kind of goes into like slow mo as the ga- the the glass breaks and. Um, there's just some really awesome filmmaking techniques just involved in the the action itself. Oh yeah, I, I love when the uh, civil rights zombie uses uh, <laughs> t- telepathy to pick up all of the heroin needles lying yes. in the alley with all these homeless people oh and just fires them at the dude and crucifies this cop yeah. with heroin needles. <laughs> and a one goes in straight into his mouth too. Yeah. And there's a POV shot of it flying towards his mouth and then a POV shot of inside his mouth where it hits the camera. (laughs) Like just really visually inventive uh, stuff where like didn't it just they didn't need to go that hard for it. And it they did. And it's just it's awesome. And the the, idea. Sorry, the uh, the idea of that that guy being then um, kind of uh, like fused into the wall as graffiti art. And it looks so it was really amazing. Oh yeah! When he melts Incredible. into I the just painting, also like that connection with Candyman. Yeah. Well, yeah. Oh, very much Candyman esque. And when he melts into the painting, it's only like three seconds, but they had to put hours, days into yes. that that effect, and it's just so sh- shocking. Like I watched it like three times in a row, and it's just like basically flawless. Um, yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, the, all, all the melting stuff, it, it looks like the Chuck Russell blob thing for, for a brief moment before it <laughs> yeah. then turns into the painting. And I, and I like, too, that each one of these, um, except for the last one, is kind of framed as like kind of like this bit of like this, you know, there's sort of like this sort of righteous revenge story a little bit to it here. Like, obviously, the civil rights activist getting to kill all these cops in very gruesome detail. I mean, he literally pulls Wings Hauser's head off of him uh, <laughs> through the top of the car. Yeah. So he, he gets some good revenge in here, but even, even the, um, the, you know, he, he gets to do this thing where, you know, he totally melts him into the mural and he goes, welcome to my world. And, uh, you know, he, he says like our, our, the, the, the younger cop who was obviously there and was sort of complicit in what was happening. Uh, you know, he says like, am, am, am I good now? And he says, you know, where were you when I needed yeah. you Yeah. and totally blows him off. And then the dude gets institutionalized and, blamed for all of the deaths of the fellow officers where they basically just say that he, you know, he, he went crazy and just killed all of his, uh, all of his coworkers essentially. So it, it, it it's interesting that the, the, there's always still a, like, you know, a little bit of complexity to some of the character work, even if, you know, again, yeah. these are like 20 minute long, like little short stories. Yeah. They feel rich with detail with it. Like with every single one being 20 minutes, they are able to, Put or just package so many ideas into all four of them. Yeah, and and really uh, taboo and risky ideas. Like we'll, we'll get to, especially with the fourth one, which we we kind of mentioned already. But I was just shocked at some of the places that they went, uh, and with such confidence. Yeah, I mean, I I love a lot of these, but like the the the, the one after the police corruption one is the domestic abuse one, and this one um, takes a little bit of its of of its time to kind of reveal what yeah. it is that it's doing, but it but it does it in a really interesting way where like you just get you know, stories at school of this young boy who's showing up with bruises and he has kind of like a teacher who sees it and wonders if, you know, he's getting beat up by, you know, the boys outside and the boy uh, just kind of mentions that, you know, it's, it's just, you know, the, you know, his, his mom, uh, isn't home much and his dad is is gone and the 
person who's doing to this, to, you know, to him is something called the monster. And he copes with that by like drawing pictures of this that he can then, you know, sort of, uh, uh, the way he sees it, he can kind of control and, uh, he can, you know, fight back against this thing by visualizing it. And then, you know, for example, maybe crumpling the paper, but there's great stylistic moments. Like when he draws the, the boy who's kind of bullying him at school, Tyrone, and he draws him in the drawing, and then you get that shot of him crumpling the piece of paper. And as he's crumpling the piece of paper, you can just hear the little boy scream. Yeah. And you could hear like Walter, uh, or you, you could, you can basically like hear, uh, the boy breaking and, and screaming and they go outside and they're like, yeah, I know he just fell. He must've had like weak bones or something <laughs> like that. And so, you know, the, there, there's subtle little, uh, cues to where this story is, is kind of going. But I really love in particular, how they drew the sequences of you know how he visualized the monster himself yeah Yeah, like like i love the shots of him hiding in his bed and the little claw slightly opening up the door and you know sort of like the orange light peeling into his room it's that fantasy element of it which is clearly what is revealed later um so yeah it's really smart uh in the sense of the the film well because i think about it when it is revealed right like he he hears the stomping the door opens and you get the you know you get the shot of the claw but then it's all revealed in kind of like this sort of like dirty behind the legs behind the butt kind of shot of the mother's boyfriend yeah and he's holding the piece of paper that depicts him as a monster that the teacher gave him and everything and his and voice it's just is crazy. distorted and so it's i like that yeah. the kid can see the stepdad eventually and and we see him clearly as a human but there's still elements of the of the monster still being put uh or through the yeah, film making exactly really like good. The, the, the 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 visual of um you know the the framing of the mom's boyfriend in the exact same way that you would visually frame like a werewolf in a horror movie right it's still done that way and that that is just like really really good stuff into like getting into the point of view of what it feels like to be this kid and that's again some of the visual craft of the overall movie. There's even like POV shots of him looking down at the teacher talking to his mom. And it's like framed through the rails of him sitting on the stairs, you know, like where the kids actually sitting and would be watching this conversation from and stuff. Yeah. So again, it's, it's, it's a very simple story, but it very, very well done in the actual filmmaking to get you to, you know, uh, have this kid cope with the fact that his mother's boyfriend is beating his mother and beating him, uh, by, turning him into this horror movie monster because that's a context where, you know, that kind of behavior makes more sense to him. And then using the kind of like the talent and art that he's developed through his frustrations to then defeat the monster. <laughs> yes. It's so awesome. Through art. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's, it's, it's great. And I just love like the, the, the visual effects of course are amazing because basically what happens is we get the, uh, what happened earlier where he crumpled the paper and, and a kid fell down the stairs, broke some bones. This time we actually get to see visually what happens and he starts you know ripping he, he creates the monster on the paper and then he rips the arm off just by ripping the page and then next thing you know the arm is off of the the stepdad and then he's starting to twist his spine so he twists all the way th- like 360 degrees and 
it's uh, eventually he's just like this blob of a man on the pile of the kitchen floor and he's got broken bones everywhere. He looks just like it's 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 wild. He looks like a blob, basically. <laughs> yeah, the, the, make, the makeup effect for that is, you know, also very good of his body just, you know, turned into like a pancake essentially. Yeah. And the mom stepping on the piece of paper oh, and the yeah. blood hitting the paper in her shoe and everything. So good. Unreal. Yeah, yeah. really good stuff. And I want, just wanted to mention David Allen Greer, a cast against type. He'd known at this time and at, and since as just one of the gentlest, kindest, happiest souls in the world playing this absolutely terrifying, terrifyingly <laughs> real, like abusive, you know, father and also a, a, a monster as well. Like very nice turn for him. I would love to know what he thought yeah. playing this role because it's absolutely not what he does. But he's great <laughs> at it. Yeah, yeah, no, really, really brutal um, in, in in the role and the way that they film it where all the violence that he's doing with, like, the belt and stuff is all, like, silhouetted and stuff like that as the teacher's, like, watching outside. And, yeah, like that, you know, very, very good little um, short story. And the one after that is the white supremacist one, right? Yes. Yeah, the, with, the politician. Uh, yeah, with the with the politician who uh, is he's he's running he's a senator who's running for governor and recently just uh, moved into his family's like old plantation home. He's like this racist southern uh, senator, and yeah, he gets to say some really crazy stuff before <laughs> all of the souls of the former slaves. <laughs> who uh, worked that plantation were put into these uh, little dolls, little dolls that uh, basically have to be a direct reference to Stuart Gordon's dolls from 1987, which they uh, very, the, the special effects are done in a very similar way Yeah, um, where, where some of it is very clearly um, stop motion and, and matted so that they could, you know, they could put it on top of other footage that they shot and sort of composited in and stuff like that. So it's done in a very similar way um but i did really love that uh it's rusty's mom playing the woman in the painting who comes up at oh the end, really that was a really hilarious touch yeah he said that he said that uh he really wanted her uh to be that role because he knew exactly the face that he was looking for when they were going <laughs> to draw her and when she was going to you know appear at the end as she does and he was like i want that face that you gave me as a kid when you <laughs> knew that i did something wrong but you and you, but you wanted me to tell you that I did it. You didn't want to confront me about That's it. That's great. I love that. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, and 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 this again, you know, again, the the last one was like more of a, you know, sort of a, you know, it it took on sort of like the household, uh, you know, sort of monster movie kind of stuff, and then this one has, you know, it, it it's 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 bigger in terms of its action. Like it, it has a dude in tracking shots, like running through this mansion with like a double barrel shotgun, shooting <laughs> at little tiny dogs. Yeah, I'll <laughs> like, it's a very different kind of horror. Yeah, this one definitely has more uh, comedy to it than the other ones I would say um not that like it's like Duke's character is just such a fucking piece of shit that um at like at a certain point that they actually do make jokes based on his racism like there's one part where he's uh discussing um what he should be saying to the press with his uh counselor um or his consultant uh, right before he dies, um, which is basically revealed to be the the doll that killed him because he was a uh, a black man helping the white supremacists get into office, essentially. 
Um, he was he, he was his PR guy helping him try to get the black right. vote essentially, and and you have which, this which is a really hard thing. To, being his PR guy has to be a very <laughs> hard job. Yeah, my <laughs> God, guess he just wanted a challenge. I don't know, uh, but but basically what happens is he sets up these things for him to say, including one racist joke that he makes, and then he says something like, "Oh, I'm spending too much time with you." But they actually do a callback later on in the next scene where he starts answering exactly as he has been instructed, but then he almost tells them the racist joke and just kind of yes. like tries to uh, I didn't you know just move on from what I just said there and, and keeps walking yeah because because the, the one the one guy says the only spoops I'm afraid of are ones with guns right and it's the guy making like a very overtly racist joke that he couldn't say Anywhere and else the funniest part about that bit guy. is he is he goes really excited he's like hey that's a good one I should say that right um, which is like a really really funny um, uh, moment where he's just like oh god I've been spending way too much much time with you and then he said actually the only spooks i'm afraid of are you spooky reporters right right and it's just like it's such an awkward delivery the way he gives it to and and i just i enjoy that they found a way to also make his incredibly racist remarks somewhat funny just in the context of how he's using it with the press and all that because it's just such a uh, like what a scathing critique of of politicians <laughs> specifically I, in this. I mean, the funny thing is, it's not really as much of a parody as you think because this character is based, oh sure, of course, on David Duke, who actually ran right, for right. governor of Louisiana and made it to a runoff. So this is not a former Klansman runs for office. That's not some sort <laughs> of like kooky exaggeration. That was politics mm-hmm. at the time. <laughs> yeah, man. it's Fucking wild, crazy. wild. <laughs> and yeah, so so then then you just get to spend the rest of it imagining. You know, the 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 more absurd part is you get to imagine David Duke running around his mansion from a Dollovision like child's play esque <laughs> little dolls chasing him down and running across. I love the shots of the POV where you can get them like running across the lawn and you can hear the little dolls like breathing and and, yeah. and stuff like that. And the and- the. the, the the, the the reveal of the doll who tripped his PR dude down the stairs and when he's watching the tape it's <laughs> so creepy there. Yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah it's also kind of funny at the same time too which I really appreciate because the dolls aren't like they're not they're uh, very small it's right very it's not even like Chucky size <laughs> these things are like four inches tall um, so that that kind of adds a little bit of comedic element to it a little bit too um, but I also love the visual representation of how they escape the, the portrait because every time one of them does their their little imprint is left in the portrait like it's just this white empty yeah. imprint um, and then as the story goes and more of them leave the portrait eventually looks at it and all of them are gone and he has no idea where they all are it's uh it, it is it, it's scary but there is like once again a bit of a comedic aspect to it that i enjoyed yeah and he's trying to fight them all with like an american flag <laughs> and a yeah. double barrel shotgun oh my God. he's just running around his mansion <laughs> unbelievable <laughs> What a visual. And yeah, that that one ends with them just hounding him and starting to tear him bit from bit. You get the shots of them like peeling his flesh off and eating him as the the doll maker sitting in the rocking chair just watching. Yeah. So good. So good. good. Stuff. Um, and the and then the very last one is the one we we kind of walked through already, but um is 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 worth kind of hitting a little bit again just because um 
you know, the, the, the way that this is kind of drawn in like, kind of like the nineties style of, you know, kind of like a crime movie just in general, where it's just, you know, there's this, he's, he's this guy who's part of a gang and, you know, he sees a rival driving around in LA and he follows him home and he just kind of like executes him. And, um, he then gets that guy's kind of crew coming out to try and take him down. And right when that happens, when they're basically about to, uh, you know, kind of blast him away in the middle of the street. That's when the cops pull up and the dude is horrified that he's like, God damn, I, the, the cop saved by a motherfucking cop, I think is what he <laughs> yeah, says. Yeah. And, and, um, yeah, that, that kind of starts like this, uh, what is actually kind of like this supernatural moment of, you know, is he, uh, you know, can he be sort of rehabilitated from who he is and the way that they do it is just horrible. We kind of already covered it a little bit, but like, yeah, the, the, the whole like experimental behavioral therapy readjustment they do him is literally just like mad science experiments, like in a castle yeah. with bodies like strung up with pigs and he gets put next to the, the neo-Nazi who, thanks him for how many, you know, sort of black people that he's killed, which is like a really thorny moment Crazy. for the film and yeah. something that really upsets him. Um, and then he's confronted then, yeah. by all his, uh, all the victims that he killed, whether accidentally or yes. purposely, including a little girl that a stray bullet hit. So, she, and he, you know, you get that moment where she's just like, I was innocent and I didn't do anything. And he's just got to fucking sit there and take it. And the effects too are, are pretty wild. Like there's one guy in the background. You can't even see his face. It's just completely blown off. There's one guy that has like half of his head kind of dangling. Like his ear is dangling from his face. Um, it, it's, it's pretty, pretty wild. Yeah, well, and and also Leslie mentioned it, I think, earlier, but they tried to clockwork orange him, too, with, like, showing him nonstop footage of, like, actual lynching victim photos and, like, interspersed with, like, these, like, grisly stylized uh, footage of, like, part of the, you know, the gang violence that he was involved in. Just this really brutal montage of just, like, black victims and and, and Mm -hmm. death. And they, uh, what is it that, uh, that, that Davis says to him? What, uh, I can't uh, remember exactly. She she says something along the lines of like Cain was the f- was the first murderer and he slayed his brother and that, right. that's what she says that that's what she tries to get him with is that he's he's slaying brothers is supposed to be the idea and yeah just you know again d- d- editing this like snuff footage music video with like the wipes and spins and visual craziness just a really crazy idea and uh, I you know again something that doesn't appear in any of the other their shorts too like like rusty really went off on the directing yeah yeah and then there's also a real like sadness at the very end of that uh which does connect to to the ending of the film in general but where he ends up just deciding like he's just gonna repeat i don't give a fuck over and over again until they shoot him dead like there was just no moving on from um the position in life that he was so he's just kind of accepted yeah, it. Yeah, it's, it's the only short that doesn't have like a revenge conclusion. Yeah. It's like, just like, sort of like this, just like you, uh, you he know, just you just accept your death. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really sad. Um, and then it gets to connect to the ending of kind of the funeral home thing, which I just right. adored. I thought oh, yeah. it was so fun and crazy. And yeah, yeah. Um, essentially, I guess the, uh, the, the, the three uh, drug dealers that we saw at the beginning ended up being the three guys that that kill the guy that stars in the fourth skit. And um, 
uh, he they, the, 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 that reveal using the lighting where it silhouettes their faces and then it reveals that it's oh, them is really good too. Really, really good. Yeah. And then so they are taken to a room where there are three few uh, three coffins, and they open them up and they're each in in their own coffins looking at themselves and then uh Claire <laughs> cuts to Clarence and he's just screaming yeah. about like how it, it, they're in hell yeah. now he's welcome to hell motherfucker yeah he says ain't no funeral Clarence. home ain't the terror dome either welcome to hell yeah. motherfuckers <laughs> classic and he's like sweating <laughs> his face is so tense he's just like shaking almost as he's delivering this his eyes line. are so wide oh my god it's unbelievably well delivered and yeah and then it reveals that they've been in hell the entire and time the makeup and effect too of him like getting the wings and becoming <laughs> satan and everything it, 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 it's honestly like it reminds me of we we covered uh rudy ray moore's um yes fuck 100%. what's the one what, what's what, what's um, a competing weed straw? straw. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. The one the one where, where he, he hooks up with the dead. The, he's the devil's son-in-law because the devil wants him to, um, uh, marry his ugly daughter and gives <laughs> him a magic pimp cane. If he will, uh, you know, if, if, if he will marry his ugly daughter and give him a grandchild, but it reminded like, this is like a moment of just pure absurdity, but again, rendered so well in the filmmaking and in the makeup work and everything. Yeah. It reminded me like if someone gave Rudy Ray Moore, you know, like millions of dollars to actually make the Satan look like Satan. This is what it would look like. <laughs> definitely. Yeah, definitely. It's so good. It's so good. And yeah, everything just breaks down around them and they just burn up and yeah, you know, all the souls are worshiping him and his like bat like glory and everything. And yeah, that's, that's just it. It's just a welcome, welcome to hell. That's uh that that is the conclusion of all of these uh, stories. That there he, he doesn't really offer you much of a solution. There's just <laughs> a sort of uh, revenge you're and a, acceptance, and you're here. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's pretty brutal, but again, it's really really well put together by Rusty. And if we're pivoting towards uh, reductive rating round to it, I think that um, I give this one a very, very solid four. I think it has, you know, a really good sense of humor and, a, you know, it's, it has, you know, a very unso- unsubtle sort of uh, sharply pointed kind of anger to it. And, you know, unlike a lot of other horror anthologies, you know, each one of these shorts has a very different sense of purpose and is, and is quite unique. And, you know, to have four segments and a wraparound segment where every single one hits, you're not going through one being like, yeah, this is kind of the weak one. Right. Um, you know, it's 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 kind of rare. So, you know, I, Rusty, I think, deserves a lot of credit, both as a co-writer and, and a director and how stylish and awesome this looks. And again, uh, Anthony P. Richmond, who shot Candyman and this, uh, both movies look really, really fan fantastic and ve- in very different ways, too. Definitely. So, you know, Rusty clearly had different ideas in terms of how he wanted to actually approach some of the horror set piecing. And yeah, so to do like, you know, spooky childhood monster movie, zombie action, fairy tale doll horror, and like mad scientist meets, I don't, I like, like snuff footage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like it, it's, it's really crazy. It's a perfect stylistic combo of goofy horror anthology with zombies and dolls and Satan, but merged with, you know, kind of like, you know, some actual, you know, uh, grit and, and, and texture and, you know, some some interesting um, politics. I think friend of the pod Kai mentioned that when he watched this film last, that it, it it doesn't you know despite how unsubtle it is, it never feels like like a lecture. It it feels like this really grotesque like sermon at yeah. a theme park kind of experience. And I, I I tend to agree with him. 
yeah, yeah. Uh, I agree with all of that. Uh, f- yeah, I'd give it a four out of five as well. I think the the balance between the comedy and horror is is perfect. It's I do find it amazing that they're able to have this be so um, just just uh, effortlessly entertaining, but also deal with some really really gritty and challenging um, commentary that it's doing. Uh, so that that I that I absolutely loved. Like t- to to have a scene where. A white supremacist looks at a uh, black gang member and says, "I like you because you also kill black people." It's just so fucking wild yeah. <laughs> that I don't. I, I've never seen anything to that degree in a in a film before, really. And um, it, it just does things like challenging things like that uh, throughout the the, the runtime. So. I thought this was fantastic. I also uh, there's a lot of respect I have for how different each um, each uh, installment is not just through the the writing, but just the filmmaking itself. Each one looks very different, which I thought was impressive. Um, so yeah, uh, four out of five. This is great, and it should be talked about amongst the 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 best horror movies of of that decade for sure. Yeah, for oh, you definitely four out of five. Same, one of the best. I mean, you hear so much about anthologies. We need to hear more about Yeah. Absolutely. Agree. Absolutely. All right. Well, I think that that wraps it up for everything uh, this week. That was Candyman from 1992 and Tales from the Hood from 1995. Thanks so much, Leslie, for joining us and for talking about these uh, films with us. Yeah. Uh, if you've got anything to plug while you're here, uh, this is where we have you do that. What's going on oh, yeah, in the Struggle Session check world? Out, check us out, patreon.com slash struggle session or sesh.plus. If you want to leave us a voicemail, ask us any questions about movies, music, video games, comic books, pro wrestling, you can do it at sesh. Awesome. Awesome. Definitely can recommend uh, going and doing all of that. For our listeners, we're going to be back in one week's time with a bonus episode uh, where we're going to be doing your voted episode, which is a Tony Scott 90s. I, I didn't realize you were spending so much time in the 90s recently. It's a Tony <laughs> Scott 90s double feature of uh, The Last Boy Scout and uh, The Fan. Oh, man. Uh, which are both really, really insane screenplays uh, <laughs> that are just all about 90s absurd maximalism taken to their extremes and Tony Scott visually rending, rendering them in like the craziest way possible. Uh, so if you have any interest in, in Tony Scott or Shane Black, who wrote Last Boy Scout, or De Niro in The Fan, <laughs> who's doing like the trashiest, grossest version of The King of Comedy you can imagine, but he's stalking Wesley Snipes pro baseball player, <laughs> definitely check out next week's episode. And then the week after that, we're going to be back with a special guest where we are going to be going back to the 70s and we're going to be talking about one, uh, Tommy, which I believe, I haven't seen it yet, but I believe that that's Ken Russell. So 1975 Tommy. And uh, the pairing was with a film called Martin, which some of you might know as George Romero's uh, vampire film from, I believe, 77. So I'm glad I didn't watch it uh, two weeks ago because I was just going to watch it on a whim. And now I'm kind of glad I saved it. Yeah, so that's what we're going to be back with a special guest doing in two weeks' time. So look forward to that. But yeah, that being said, I think that wraps up for everything this week. Uh, thanks so much for listening, and keep us lazy. Keep us lazy. <laughs>